0: Welcome to Week Question and Learn. This is Tom Pies. We're celebrating our 16th year. Yes, Brian, you can last in public broadcasting for more than a few years. We have uh, two special guests. First, we'll introduce our prime and most important guest. Sorry, Brian. Daniel Meyer, music director of the Erie Philharmonic. And it, and we're just so happy you came up the hill. Thank you, Tom. Because on, on the day of this recording, and this will be on the air early December, uh, you had to cross a lot of slippery streets to get here. Right? You know
1: what? It looks very much like December outside. So it's, <laughs> it's appropriate that this will air. In and December. this is our
0: first Sunday of December program. And Daniel, thank you so much for braving the cold to be up at WQLN. And a special guest who came from down the hall from the next room. From the next room. Brian Hanna, <laughs> who interrupted his well planned broadcast uh, through the magic of technology and is able to sit with us and add to the content of the program. So we're already uh, a couple of months into the
1: season, right? How's it going, Dan? It's going very, very well. And you have to remember, we have been angling for and hoping for and expecting this amazing renovation of the Warner Theater, and virtually every season we've planned for the past <laughs> three or four years has been mega blast, most amazing classical music that you could ever hear, because we are thinking, well, this will be our last uh, last year in the Warner Theater before we have to live through a year of renovation and now we finally are at that juncture. So we are <laughs> planning yet another amazing season for next year to carry us through um but essentially uh, why not? I mean we have five symphonic programs, five pops programs and then of course we uh, perform concerts all over northwestern Pennsylvania, but at the end of the day our job is to put on something that people will resonate with and will be excited by and changed by the opportunity to hear this orchestra. And, um, and frankly, uh, in a very selfish way, I'm trying to put together programs that I like to conduct. I I'm really looking forward to you know, the, the next opportunity that I get to stand in front of this orchestra because I know what they're capable of. I think I know what they're capable of. And I hope that I just don't get in the way.
0: Well, for people who are tuning in across the country, how many years has it
1: been for you here? I think this is Erie? my twelfth season with the, isn't that the wonderful? Harmonic, which is I think, isn't um, that a world's record for Erie? Pistone? I don't know if it's a world's record, but yeah. um, it's funny because I, I I try not to look backwards all that much. So when I say twelve, it's a shock to me as well because I still feel like uh, we're building. There's a vital aspect to the music making that we do, and there's a vital aspect to essentially promoting great art and great music in our community i think it takes a lot of energy a lot of money and a lot of people donating a lot of their time and their energy to make this work and and it's 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 a run that i i'm very happy to run and yeah, to continue to run fabulous what you do well, and, you know and your musicians
2: uh, i i believe i played your very first official concert which was uh, at the bayfront on the in the amphitheater on the on the bayfront it was the uh, uh, Pepsi amphitheater at the time, I think is what they called it. Yeah. Uh, is that, but that was your very first official concert. I think I jumped, off a, trip, a jumped off a boat in a wet suit. And <laughs> and, right. That's I'm not exactly kidding. what I actually did. Well, well I didn't. Well, sure. oh, I sh- thought you were, don't, <laughs> you don't have to give away the magic <laughs> You don't have to reveal the magic. But, um, yeah. th- that was 12 years ago. You were a 12 year old kid, just starting with your first, uh, big orchestra performance here in Erie, Pennsylvania. Uh, and everybody was just, uh, amazed by your first performance and the shows because they've kept you for 12 years, which is really exciting. They've made you part of the Erie family, which is really nice. Well,
1: it's funny. I, I think in my fifth year with the orchestra, I had an interview, and he said, how, how many years have you been here? And I said, five. And he said, oh, you're good.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you and that it just that. made me laugh. Yeah. This is kind of a hump that I needed to get over. Really? Um, is there tenure in the classical music it's, it's, business? It's all, really all over the map, frankly. I mean, you'll yeah. find some music directors... Sp- spend virtually their entire careers with an orchestra. If you look at Franz Welser Möst over in Cleveland, he just re-upped through uh, another four or five years. I mean, he has had perhaps one of the lengthiest uh, music directorships with a major orchestra. And then there are some communities that hire somebody for two or three years, maybe they need to, uh, to re-energize or they need somebody to get them over a hump or they're just looking for a personality that then gives them buys them more time, frankly, to look for another music director. So there are a lot of different ways that, that orchestras look for leadership. But in, in my opinion, it takes a long time to build a relationship and to build a, a sense of ensemble and, and to connect with the community. This and program later like December doing
0: it. 1st, with that comment you made, what's the talent pool for folks that do what you do? is this diminishing overall or are they clamoring to
1: I think there'll always be people that want to stand in front of an orchestra and wave their arms I mean it's it it but is it's more than that it's, No but I mean yeah. but you have to be seduced by that initial moment you have to sit no. in a concert hall and say oh, Wow, that looks like an enormous oh, yeah. amount of fun. I want to do that. Oh, and there's been television programs where they put amateurs
0: up there, some of which have done pretty well, but it's more complex than waving your arms for us neophytes. True
1: enough, but I yeah. think you have to have that superficial excitement about about the, yeah. the sheer attractiveness yeah. of leading a group of 100 people who are experts at what they do. I mean, I try to think sure. of other CEOs or other bosses who have the advantage that I have, which is I get to work with a, a workforce that have spent their entire lives honing the craft that they that they yeah. that they that they work on, and I mean, you know, they were five or six years old when they started taking their instruments. They were very carefully and judiciously uh, brought yeah. along in an entire um, set of rudiments and learning technique and learning the basics of music, learning the language of music, and then essentially competing against each other for spots in these orchestras and in these ensembles. And if you think about the Erie Philharmonic, you're looking at some of the finest musicians in the United States that How did just you get start? past that.
3: How did you start?
1: Well, I uh, I think it started with just singing along with my mom at the piano. I mean, no I, there are, are pictures of me in, in diapers sitting right next to her, and she would sing songs and let me plunk along on, on the piano and sing along with her, so yeah. just the love of music and making music normal in our family was, I think, was an imp- the most important first step. And then I took piano lessons from kindergarten And uh, the glory days in the public schools when in third grade you could march down to a room and pick up a stringed instrument. And and I said, Mom, I want to take the violin. And so I started violin in third grade through the public schools, and then within a couple years started taking private lessons. And then singing has always been a part of my life, vocalizing. I still sing in front of the orchestra. I mean, it's really the quickest means to communicate what I want with the musicians is to sing how I think a particular phrase should go. During a
2: performance, or is it just in... Well, yeah.
1: well I, can, I can tell you a story. because
2: yes, uh, I, I remember you, you vocalize sometimes. I do sometimes I, grunt,
1: sometimes. I grunt I, okay. I sometimes. I don't even know I'm doing it. I remember sitting in, uh, in the lawn at Tanglewood mm-hmm. one summer when I was a student, and Seiji Ozawa was conducting Beethoven's Seventh Symphony. Mm-hmm. And there are microphones that pick up the orchestra, and there are some that, of course, positioned right near the, the conductor. And I swear to you, all I heard in that first movement was hur, 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 hur. <laughs> he was vocalizing the rhythm internally, and it was becoming external and being picked up by the microphones. And all I could hear was this oh. grunt
2: along with yeah. the Lenny Berns, with the music Bernstein. You, know. you, Bernstein, uh, you, you hear occasionally. You'll hear a, mmm! as he's conducting something that uh, in a nice recording. You know, the great Glenn Gould sang along oh. with practically everything he ever played. Yeah. We you know, know Edgar
1: Meyer just came and performed with us. Yeah. And if you listen to his commercial recording of his of his bass concerto you can literally hear him go You can hear him counting out the beats to his own concerto, which just makes me smile because it means, ah, he wrote a piece that was even hard for him to play.
2: (laughs) Well, you know, also, Tom, you mentioned uh, you don't just get up there and wave your arms around. You know, it's so much more than that. Of course, it's uh, making your own interpretations of the pieces of music or following closely to somebody else's interpretation. You know, there's a reason why there's 85 different recordings of the Beethoven 9 in our music library here, because each conductor puts his own spin on it to a certain degree. Uh, Do you like to put your own spin on music? Do you like to listen back to old recordings of great conductors and try to uh, use their interpretations? Uh, And what kind of research do you put into preparing uh, a great piece of music that maybe you haven't done before? I mean, the Pines of Rome, uh, who hasn't recorded Pines of Rome? So when you're coming with a fresh performance of Pines of Rome, there's an expectation that the audience expects to hear something they're familiar with how much leeway does that give you to play with it, make it Daniel Meyer's own interpretation?
1: Well, there are a couple aspects to an interpretation. One is just the sheer technicalities related to that ensemble in that Mm -hmm. space and in that time period, which is to say we are in a kind of a glory era of a very highly trained and highly skilled workforce, which is to say everyone on that stage is an expert at his or her instruments. There's, there really isn't a whole lot of struggling going on to render the notes. So you're, li- you're living in, in that situation. Number two, you're living in a specific acoustic. You know, the Warner Theater is an old movie house that has been retrofit into a concert hall. I have to take that into account in the decisions that I make regarding tempos or speed at which the music is performed, or the degree to which the sound reverberates. For instance, if I were to conduct a piece in a big cathedral with a wide or a long reverberation, I would adjust my decisions there versus what I would do in the Warner Theater. Uh, Thirdly, and perhaps the most important, is what do I think the composer's trying to say with the music? What is this art signifying? Or what is it trying to say? Or is it music about music? I have to make all of those decisions, and that's a much lengthier process. That comes from the initial excitement of... (gasps) oh, what is that piece? Oh, it's the Pines of Rome. Oh, I hope I get a chance to conduct that someday. To, oh, here's the Pines of Rome. Oh, let's take a look at the score. Let's see what the forces are, what the technical difficulties are. Is this really right for the Erie Philharmonic for this particular concert or this particular juncture in, in their history? And then, is it right for me? Is it a piece that resonates with me? Is there something that I feel like I can say about this piece or bring to life that may or may not have been brought to life before for these musicians? So, for me, unlocking all of these things and revealing all of these things, unfortunately, happens mostly out of the public eye. It happens at my study and at my desk, you know, two, one, one half year before the performance even happens, and then the weeks leading up to. And then, in those wonderful but very pressure laden, few rehearsals that are leading up to the actual performance, and then there's the ecstasy that everybody gets to experience in the concert hall and that we finally get to share these years of, of uh, cumulative knowledge and work and a meeting of the minds, if you will, about how the music should, should be rendered. Um, so it's, 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 it's a multi-layered uh, experience. And one that's enormously gratifying, but it, it, it's interesting that you talk about. Well, there are 85 perf- recordings of Beethoven's Fifth or Brahms's Fourth. Um, that's fascinating, and it would be it would be not wise of me to ignore those. Um, I, there's a lot for me to learn. Um, from the mistakes or the successes that other practitioners have had with that particular piece. So it makes a lot of sense for me to listen to Lauren Mazzell's recording with the Cleveland Orchestra, even if I know that I'm not, I don't have the Cleveland Orchestra in front of me, because there are certain things that he solved with that piece um, that may help me inform how I might solve those, those difficulties or those problems or those questions that just need to be answered with my own ensemble. Um, and sometimes it's fun to listen to a crummy recording just because you know right off the bat what's really difficult for the orchestra, what's going to be um, is going to take a little extra time in rehearsals, um, and oh, I can't believe he or she did that with that particular phrase. I, I have a very different idea about uh, about that, and you know, I can I can actually
2: solve or pre-solve a lot of those issues before I even get in front of the orchestra because it behooves me to do so. And if you just look at the length of some of these recordings, you can tell how varied the interpretations can be, just looking at the time markings, because you'll see uh, recordings that uh, are 27 minutes versus 22 minutes. Mm -hmm. How did that conductor make up a five-minute gap in that I'll tell you a little secret about
1: that, too. Um, (laughs) Sometimes that's related to the era in which those pieces were recorded, because Mm -hmm. if you think about it, Um, Back in the day of, you had to fit it on an LP. That's right. You have to fit the the music onto a particular, you know, Mm -hmm. a side or or flip over to the other side for the other two movements. So some interpretive decisions were made in those eras just for the sheer practicality of fitting it all on a Mm -hmm. piece of vinyl that could be packaged and and set out. So um, you have to be careful, Mm. Um, and you also have to think, and you have to know a little bit about music history to know. Well, you know, Mozart put. Um, repeat signs around this, probably because it was designed for a party situation or he needed to fill up time, and he told the musicians, hey, we're not going to need to take this repeat tonight because Mm -hmm. of such and such and so and so, or there may be other pieces on the program. Mm -hmm. Or he say, go ahead, repeat this again, you know, Mm -hmm. to fill out a particular length, just for the sheer practicality of of keeping people warm in a ballroom. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, And so, you know, these are all... Issues that play into how long pieces last, but but as you say, it's also exciting and f- endlessly fascinating to hear um, essentially how quickly different conductors' hearts tick um, yeah. and, and how quick their pulse is,
2: because some
1: pieces work brilliantly at a fast speed, and they work just as brilliantly at a
2: snail's pace. And how much do you have to prepare yourself for that? going into a concert because you're doing the Overture to Candide, you're excited. Yeah. You're in front of an audience of 3,000 people. You get up on stage, you've rehearsed it comfortably yeah. with just your friends on the stage. Now you're in front of 3,000 people, the adrenaline's going a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does it take to rein that back in and not just jump into it at full mm-hmm. speed? And do you ever start something and then catch yourself 30 <laughs> seconds into it going,
1: oh boy. Yeah, but then I think your bet is made. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I learned a, a pretty valuable lesson when I watched um, my boss in Pittsburgh, uh, Morris Janssen's. Um, and in dress rehearsals, they were the most boring performances I think I'd ever witnessed. And he barely moved a muscle. He really only moved his hands enough to get things started, stopped, move them along show more or less the pacing that he was going to use that night. And I I asked my friend I said what is going on here? I mean how is this concert ever going to come have any kind of life to it? And he said just just hang on, wait. And he was very conscious about a preserving the energy level of the musicians because often dress rehearsals happen on the same day as the the first night's performance. Mm-hmm. And b he didn't he wanted some degree of uncertainty still baked into the cake. In other words, when the performance came that night, there still needed to be some decisions made that surprised the musicians or w- was different from what they were expecting. And part of that was the magic of investing that performance with energy and life and an unexpected element that made everything just kind of explode. And, and as an interpreter and as a concert conductor, I mean, I, I, there are very few that, that, he, that have a peer Morris that to that degree and and a lot of it I think is is owed to this very clinical very staid very careful very energy preserving dress rehearsal that then parlays itself into an explosive performance that night and and um, I'm not always capable of reining it in <laughs> yeah, um right. that's something that I think it will take a lifetime to master but I think um, that's something that he he just had in spades you mentioned you go two three years out what What does the orchestra contribute to the selection
0: or to the concert? Or are they at your beck and call, so to speak?
1: Well, you know, the two aspects of my job are the impresario and the programmer. So I need to help choose the guest artists that come to Erie. I also need to choose the program, the the pieces that we're going to play. And then at the end of the day, I'm the one that stands up in front of the orchestra and says, this is how I think we should perform these pieces. So in the music director hat or the planning stages, um, I have to be very careful to think, oh, well, if we're performing Tchaikovsky in January, then I need to uh, balance our diet with a little bit of Beethoven in March. Or if the chorus is being used uh, for this concert, we have to give them a couple months off so that they have an opportunity to, to, you know, regain uh, strength and energy and learn the next program so there really is a lot of it's a bit of a shell game it's a little bit of a puzzle it's a little bit of taking all the constituent pieces and trying to shape a season that is exciting over a wide span from September through June or whatever it would be and each concert in and of itself is has an interest has a has an excitement has a flow has a through line of some degree Um, and it's related to how you put these disparate pieces together on a program over a period of time What input does the
0: audience have? Because you're planning well in advance. And the the market dictates
1: sometimes what you do, maybe? No, you're absolutely right. And I would say that's more on the pops side than on the classical side. Um, On the pop side, we try to stay current. We try to keep up with whatever music is popular in the day. And that's why we tend to wait a little bit later and and, uh, Mm. uh, hedge our bets a bit when it comes to programming on the pops series. But on the classical series... Um, we know what the pieces are. We know the composers that people love. We know the composers that our musicians are trained to perform to the best of their ability. Okay. So that informs the staple of the diet. And then we start to add interesting elements as we as we move along.
0: Mr. Hanna has to... Um disappear and and go back to his radio studio where we sequester him to play cds of all things come on (laughs) they he is not honored with an orchestra as you are and while we have our last 10 minutes here uh you've gone through some of the season but december 7th is sneaking up and there's a, a wonderful you tell us about the season upcoming
1: well, there's a, uh, there's a through line to the last three years and this current season, which is to say we've been celebrating the life of Ludwig von Beethoven. And everyone yeah. on the planet who has an orchestra or an ensemble or a string quartet or performing arts series is saying happy birthday to Beethoven yeah. this coming year because yeah. we're celebrating his 250th. Yeah. So we have spent the past three years uh, in some degree of a retrospective playing the great concerted works of Beethoven, the concertos, the overtures, the symphonies. And so um, uh, we just performed Leonore over, uh, Overture number 3 from his um, opera, or was designed for his opera Fidelio. Uh, we'll be performing the Ninth Symphony, which is the great Ode to Joy Symphony, which involves a huge chorus <laughs> and a quartet of operatic soloists to, to finish our season, Um, So that's been a through line for us, and that's not hard to do, because we already love the music of Beethoven, and there's so many challenges that are uh, kind of part and parcel of bringing that music to life. Um, I've also had a little sub-theme this season of American music, and American composers and American uh, performers. In fact, the entire program in January is dedicated to Uh, great American composers and performers. Aaron Copland, music from our town, which I think a lot of people don't know. They know the Thornton Wilder play, of course, but maybe they don't know that Aaron Copland wrote some beautiful Mm. and poignant incidental music to go with it. Leonard Bernstein's West Side Story. Um, Of course, everyone knows the musical, or at least knows a few tunes from the musical, but maybe they didn't know that he he took all the music from it and fashioned it into a full symphonic suite. So we'll be performing that as well. Howard Hanson, not a very well-known American composer, but an important figure in the previous century in American musical history, um, and was also closely associated with uh, the Eastman School of Music, wrote the, uh, a, a little compact symphony, Symphony Number no. 5, called Sinfonia Sacra, which I think is so powerful and makes such a big impact that I wanted to include that music in the mix so that people um, understood that there were still people writing tonal music and listenable music in the era of the, the atonal music and the 12-tone composers. And then we're also part of a co-commission. Michael Torkey... Uh, one of the uh, most highly regarded American composers today, wrote a brand new violin concerto for Tessa Lark. And um, Tessa is capable of just about anything. And he thought, well, why don't we do something with a little bit of of, of an authentic... Um, American tinge to it. So we included some real bluegrass elements into this oh, concerto. Yeah. And we're one of we're among the first orchestras to ever perform this work because we were part of the co-commissioners. And co-commissioning just means that we were part of sponsoring it and helping pay for the commission and, and paying for the composition of the piece. So we get the honor of being one of the first orchestras to actually perform it. Um, so it's exciting to be a part of that. I think that's important for us to be um, involved in. And I also think it's important for us to play music of 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 our country, of our nation, of our composers, because the good news is that there are still composers alive and well and writing mm-hmm. very listenable music. They care about what audiences think about their music. They want to write music that resonates with people. And I think that's really important. And I mean, I'm just l- looking here. I mean, we're doing a full-length feature um, of one of the most iconic American films from the previous century in Steven Spielberg's E.T., The Extraterrestrial.
0: Now, that encourages people to bring their children, right? Isn't that something you're working towards? Of course. young
1: people? I mean, I want the concert hall to be a place where everyone feels comfortable. I don't want people to think, oh, well, what do I need to wear? Or uh, how do I behave? Or when do I clap? We don't care about that. Yeah. We care that you come and that what we're playing on stage resonates with you in some in some way. Yeah. And what's so great about E.T. is that it's a story that's just so touching and that, it, that everyone can resonate with. Um, but it has this incredible score by one of the finest composers of the previous century and this century, John Williams. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that score to E.T., uh, let him flex his, his uh, outer space muscles a bit, you know, write music that, I mean, how do you write That's music good. about moons and stars and yeah. satellites and yeah. asteroids yeah. and, and f- flying saucers? Yeah. Um, he has this incredible imagination, and he's able to transfer it to the entire orchestra, and it, I think to watch the feature film on a huge screen and hear the eerie philharmonic play it live and bring that soundtrack to life is an experience that you can't get anywhere else. And that's a trend now, right? It is. You
0: never used to see something else in the media or from the media or multimedia.
1: Well, if you think about it, most of these these film scores were put together in segments. So if a a film composer and orchestra is playing a soundtrack, they might be doing a 15-second, 30-second, 45-second bit, and then they perfect it and then move on to the next thing. And then it's up to the editors to stitch it all together later. Yes. Yeah. So if you if you can imagine two hours of a very taxing and a very athletic uh, musical score that then the orchestra has to play in real time in perfect synchronization yeah. with the film, yeah. I, I think we're now in the at the part in music history where orchestras can actually pull that off. It, it's it's fair. We have a couple minutes left now.
0: Where do you see the film in five years? Where it is? Have you? You're two years out, I think, maybe three. Right. Can I get a preview of what you're thinking about? Or is it still a work in progress? Well,
1: it's always a work in progress. Progress. But this community will hear this orchestra like they've never heard it before. One, because we just keep getting better. Yes. But two, as a function of the renovation and the acoustic improvement of the Warner Theater, Yes you'll hear things from the orchestra that you probably have never heard of heard before and my hope is that it will be so well tuned to the space and i know it can work because i actually worked for an orchestra that played in a very similar space you
0: and i talked uh, a couple of years back about klein yeah in buffalo where the resonance was just supernatural right you're work- working on that now
1: that's right the, yeah. the idea is to create a space for the orchestra and get a shell around the orchestra that completely collects the sound we make mm. and a make it easier for the orchestra to hear each other, but B get yeah. that wonderful collection of sound beautifully mm-hmm. distributed and pushed out into the into the space in which. 10 second the question: Will sense. that include technology to record you? I, ser- you I certainly hope so. Uh, I, I think I think that's part of the future is to yeah, okay. is to let the rest of the world know what what a what treasure we have here yeah. and what we're doing here in Erie is. Is important and exciting well you are a treasure and I'm allowed to say that I'm the
0: host of the program <laughs> but secondly we're very grateful for what you do as music director for the area Philharmonic I think I speak for the community you're a joy and a pleasure and you you're a community treasure for all of us listening on WQLN but in the entire Northwest Pennsylvania and the world
1: well you're kind so, to uh, say so yeah, but I,
0: no it's uh, true
1: thank you it's true very good thank you thank
0: you so much for being here
1: it's my pleasure Tom. thank you
3: I'm Michelle Martin. These days, it seems like just about
1: everybody is choosing sides and doubling down on talking points. Here at NPR, we try to cut through the noise with meaningful and respectful discussions with people from all perspectives, backgrounds, and walks of life. Join the conversation every weekend on All Things Considered from
2: NPR News.
0: Saturday and Sunday afternoons at 5 on WQLN Radio.
1: This is Jeff Hanley, host of Jazz Happening Now. Each week we listen to some of the latest jazz recordings, and I think you'll be thrilled by what today's jazz musicians are doing and say. The recording industry has changed, but the music is as alive and as vibrant as ever. The future of jazz is happening right now, if you just listen. And please do. Sunday night at
0: 6 on WQLN Radio. Welcome to Week Question and Learn. Today, Jerry Schneenberger from the Northwest Industrial Resource Center. Welcome to WQLN. Thank you, Tom. Welcome back, because I think it's been five years since, uh, or yeah. four.
3: Yeah, been, been a while. Yeah. yeah, it's been a few times. I think when I was at Penn State Barron as tech transfer manager. Oh, that's right. To yeah. Talk about uh, all the good things we were doing. We're thrilled
0: to have you. You are the uh, chief operating officer. Yeah. And uh, you work with Bob Zaruda, who's the president and CEO. Yes. So let's just define the organization itself, the Northwest Industrial Research Center. What is it? First, there's folks who probably don't understand all the good things you do.
3: Great. Uh, Yeah, Uh, it's a nonprofit uh, public-private partnership. There are roughly 60 uh, centers around the country. We just have one of them in little northwest uh, Pennsylvania And we serve uh, 13 counties all the way out to St. Mary's, down to Clarion and Mercer and up here in Erie and Warren and Bradford. And uh, believe it or not, Tom, we have about 1,400 manufacturers that we serve. It's more than you would think. And a lot of those are service organizations that uh, belong in supply chains. So just like the Department of Commerce has – Ma- or agricultural extension partnership offices. You'll see one up in Northeast that's run by Penn State. They help uh, grape farmers and farmers understand uh, different issues in farming. We do the same thing for the U.S. Department of Commerce. We help manufacturers with new tactics, new technologies, and new new
0: methods. The big picture then is you are an independent nonprofit organization stretching across the country, right?
3: Well, uh, our program is run through NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, which is uh, a wholly owned and funded subsidiary of the U.S. Department of Commerce. Now, those are the folks that do all the measurement and yeah. keep the clocks? And on protocols and standards. So ISO 9001, for example, yes. was uh, started there. Uh, uh, many standards are started there. There's something called ISO, oh, actually, no, it's called NIST 800-171. NIS NIST. NIST. Mm-hmm. NIST 800 uh, 171 that will become an international I think standard. I remember uh, ISO 1000 or whatever that was called. Way ISO 9000. 9000. 9, yeah. And then remember uh, the B- Malcolm Baldrige Award? I- yeah. Yeah. Remember some of these uh, uh, manufacturers actually went bankrupt trying to comply with all the standards back in the 1980s. So we were started in the 1980s. The the Japanese back in the day were really uh, taking some of our, our methods around Six Sigma and lean manufacturing tactics and doing it one better than us. And their profitability and their marketability was uh, outshining ours. So our GE was a big Six Sigma. Oh, Six Sigma, lean, continuous improvement. Oh, yeah, just-in-time manufacturing. Yeah. Boy, um, you're bringing back
0: memories. That was huge back
3: then. Yeah. You know. So we've been around for 30-plus uh, years, okay. and we're, we always seem to be pushing the envelope. So if the scientists in the labs and the folks in the university setting uh, come across a good idea, our jobs uh, are to move those ideas into the 30-, 50-, 100-person shops in our territory.
0: Okay, that's not easy. I guess um, you have 1,400 folks that you
3: organizations
0: you service, but yeah, there's prospects. many, many, many more than that, right? Am I mistaken? It,
3: it, oh, in the uh, region, in your region, there. oh my gosh, the SBDC, the Ben Franklin, you know, so many of uh, our partners are serving different markets. Our market solely is the manufacturing market. And okay. frankly, uh, our purview is more the 500 employee and less. You know, we don't really okay. serve manufacturers, the DuPonts, the IBMs, the GEs of the world, frankly, probably have the resources to... Uh, uh, underwrite and fund and assist themselves. Well, those are the bread-and-butter companies in our
0: country now, aren't they, when you really think about it? Uh, the big big corporations? No, no, the, oh, the small hundreds ones. of thousands of mom-pop, up to 50-employee or under-employee shops.
3: Absolutely. They run the country, so to speak. I think they always ran the country. Yeah. When you think about the heritage of uh, Erie, where did Erie Insurance come from? Yeah, a two guy. person. Yeah. yeah. Well two two guys in a in a shop. Yeah. If you look at hammer mill papers, if you look at Steris at American Sterilizer, oh, yeah. uh Erie's magnetics, they were yeah. all uh one two person, three person shops. Uh yeah. the pre over at the out of uh, garages too yeah. sometimes. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so uh, I, I think we're just uh understanding the destructive nature of the startup and the small entrepreneur versus the big uh, entities and you know the 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 uh, downsizing of the big corporations is spectacular, but nobody uh, understands or comprehends the small businesses, you know, of which will start up and half of them will not be in existence in 10 years' time. But mm-hmm. one of those, yeah. one of that out of those 10 will probably flourish and grow up to be the next Aries Magnetics or the next Lord Corporation.
0: So, how many folks do you have? I have a printed list. I'm not going to read all of these off, but there's a dozen people here. No. Yeah, nearly yeah, a dozen. dozen. We're. Yeah. Um, minus one uh, 11 11. yeah close enough and uh your territory once again I see you have a Meadville office
3: yeah Dubois office that's about the farthest you go maybe yeah our Dubois person goes all the way over to uh St. Mary's in Elk County all right and that uh, and that is an historical area as well oh yeah your powdered metal industry
0: is that still prevalent in that area how did you know not I a lot of people know that. I spent, Usually, I know that. stuff. I looked your uh, your footprint, and I was in the corporate insurance world, and we went yeah. to all these uh, and and worked with a lot of these guys. Yeah. And that's a fascinating industry, as you know, came from Germany. Yeah after World War II. And. I think I should be interviewing you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you, you know, and, and they, uh, uh, well, we, we won't. We'll go into that story about no, how powder metals it, got oh, to pa- the end States. Powder metal is a big deal. We caused it in attacking Germany. Yeah. We really did because they couldn't put smokestacks up. Because we would bomb them, so they figured out how to take scrap metal and yeah. grind it into powder and do casting underground. Yeah, right? that's a
3: huge. Industry. And all
0: those wonderful uh, folks who who invented that came here. A lot of them came here to uh, Central Pennsylvania, St. Mary's. Yeah, yeah that's and right. and Central PA.
3: Yeah. yeah, it's a huge. So uh, you, know you know all about powdered metal. Well, yeah. if they could just get some employees out there uh, and workers. It's a beautiful place to live. It's Come a on. great place. <laughs> well, we got to get our young people yeah. uh, to stay there and to, yeah. to grow. Uh, so. Uh, we We have such a rural uh, footprint, 11 of our 13 uh, counties are are considered uh, rural by the USDA. And uh, one of the things that we struggle with is, uh, you know, getting uh, skilled uh, laborers and and people to live there. and we're doing a fair job uh, on that. And then, of course, sometimes you, you work around the fact that there's a gap, and you do that through automation. We're working with many organizations on mm-hmm. uh, visual inspection so systems. So your organization robotics. is a
0: knowledge base. In,
3: it's in, more than a knowledge base. It's 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 applied knowledge and applied engineering.
0: Okay. Uh, so, so your so, people are totally experienced in, in uh, communicating. Obviously, you know what you're talking about for obvious reasons you have.
3: Well, we're connectors. So we know what the universities uh, offer. We know those fledgling two- and uh, three-person operations. You know, there are operations and consultants who are experts in certain domains and engineering and design spaces. And a lot of those uh, small consultants don't have the opportunity to knock on the doors of uh, the thirteen or 1,400 manufacturers that we serve. So we do that for them. And uh, so sometimes when we're making referrals and, and setting up projects with universities or collegiate, Resources. Sometimes it's with small um, consultants. Sometimes our consultants that we partner with are uh, multi-state and, and regional. For example, we work in cybersecurity, and we work mm-hmm. with a uh, an expert in Western New York, and we also have one in Cleveland, and uh, they could do things that, uh, frankly, our uh, some of our local providers don't don't. So have these the are
0: independent consultants. would you Yeah, say? they're yeah. in business, so to speak. Oh yeah, yeah,
3: they're in business. Yeah, and you are a connector. We are connected. Not only do we connect and solve problems, and, you know, f- frankly, if you're an operations person or an engineer at a uh, manufacturer and you're struggling with pro- problems, you may not have gotten out of your own building or gotten out of your own space uh, to know what the resources are available. Sometimes those resources are available at colleges or universities, sometimes with a one- or two-person uh, consulting shop. Sometimes it's with a major uh, regional uh, consulting uh-huh. Um with that said, um, how do you qualify these
0: people, or do they come to you? Well, you're a connector, so you probably do a lot of research, correct, to determine who would be helpful exactly. to your 1,400. That's manufacturers. right, and we only uh, don't get me wrong. And you've been around 30 years, so the information comes to you eventually. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, not well, we're, you, but well, we're <laughs> yeah. known.
3: We're, we're known to be yeah. you know technical problem solvers. We're not. Out, uh, you know, uh, doing chamber-like, you know, events, networking yeah, events. Yeah. We're, you know, we, we're just not. We're just we're born and bred to uh, solve problems uh, out on the shop floor and with leadership uh, development and uh, new product development. Before we like get that. to the topic uh, that you're kindly going to offer in the way of
0: advice, um, one more thing about uh, your group organizationally. How do you guys get funded? How does that
3: work? Great question. It's a three-pronged approach. One. A third of our funds come from uh, US Department of Commerce through the NIST program. A second um, area is the Economic Development Department of Pennsylvania. And the third is self-generated revenues through training and consulting. Okay, so you're not fundraisers, but you have
0: a menu and folks can come to you and each of these services might have a fee or a nominal fee. Exactly. And it's not like you're going to the bank and making a profit, but you certainly need nope. to cover expenses.
3: Exactly. Right. And there are uh, one-off grant programs that uh, oh, we gain okay. from both state and federal uh, means. And, for example, we're under a new grant program. It's a three-year-long program called the Advanced Manufacturing Technology Program. And uh, not only do we connect manufacturers with uh, solutions and expert consultants, but we might underwrite by two, three, four thousand dollars, whatever it, it, it takes, uh, to get a job, job, and project initiated. And some of those uh, grant programs that we work under kind of accelerate a manufacturer's consideration to adopt those solutions. But at the same time, they now understand that this
0: is available. And then the yeah. topic at hand, you offer education along with
3: that. Yeah. Yeah, we do a lot of forums, a lot of seminars. We partner uh, with our consultants. We've done robotics forums, we've done automation, oh, really? okay. uh, visual inspection systems, we've done cybersecurity, best practices forums. So we're coupling uh, our outreach and uh, our training along with our uh, project implementation services. We're talking with Jerry
0: Schneckenberger, the Chief Operating Officer for the Northwest Industrial Resource Center. Um, here in Erie, Pennsylvania, and of course all across uh, all across a lot of Pennsylvania to the other side of Dubois, so to speak. Yeah. over the hill, over, over the, the hill.
3: hill. Yes, and there's a lot of stuff out there. Uh,
0: your territory, yeah. uh, you're, you you do a good job serving it, but you have a, a outrageously large territory.
3: Yeah, it's the biggest in the state of Pennsylvania. Yeah, you know, oh, we have a sister yeah. organization down in. Pittsburgh and other in uh, Philadelphia and yeah. uh, other places in Pennsylvania, but our footprint
0: is yeah. the largest. Well, it would make sense to have them in urban areas, but boy, you you're pretty well spread out. Yeah.
3: Forest County, that. little Forest County, who do? Who wouldn't know that there would there's manufacturing in. Uh, Force County. More than is, what
0: people understand. Yeah. Yeah. There's some good things going on all across
3: Pennsylvania. Yeah. And
0: rural America has a good work ethic, doesn't it? In Pennsylvania, I hear it
3: does. We're known for that. So not yeah. only did you bring up the uh, powder metal, but we're known for tool and die development. Yes. We're uh, known for plastics uh, in general. Well, how do you make plastic parts? You need yeah. the tool and die industry. That's right. Right. Yeah. yeah. The big three are the plastics, the tool, tool and die, and then the powder. But there's a little uh, area known as carbon. Uh, carbon development really uh, uh, carbon fiber carbon uh composites yeah and this is more recent if i can well recall. 20 years 10 years yeah 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 well quiet.
0: just think at one time and now i'm showing my age the back of uh, television was fiberboard <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> and you know now yeah. you pick up a television what is it it's a oh, giant piece of plastic casing yeah. with some glass in it. yeah so the world has changed Now, as you go along and uh, you're out helping these people, they probably put requests into you for things that would be helpful to their companies. And we've talked about technology and uh, one of the big things, and we were talking about turning off our phones here, everybody's involved in some aspect of having computer technology. Boy, even saying the word computer seems uh, archaic, right? (laughs) Networks, uh, server, the whole ball of wax, the point being is that you do a lot of work helping people with their cybersecurity. Yeah. Did I hear that right? Yeah. Okay. How yeah. does that all work? How'd you guys get into that?
3: Well, uh, let's see. Uh, it, it's part of our uh, charter. So, like, oh. like we were talking about, we started out with uh, lean and continuous improvement and six sigma and those things that uh, were quality oriented back in the nineteen eighties and. Somewhere along the line, we've morphed into MRP and ERP systems and servers. Now, and before it goes too far, some of us know what that is, but MRP. Oh, material resource planning and okay, enterprise resource you. planning. Right. Yeah, it's yeah, great that big makes sense software now. systems: yeah. Oracle and yeah. SAP yeah. and Great Plains and all these. And these are
0: common programs. words in American vernacular now. <laughs> SAP, <laughs> yeah. Oracle. Maybe people don't really understand how that all works because yeah. your just-in-time stuff is not just physical anymore. Oh, yeah, Putting it's the boxes digital. on the truck. Yeah, it's digital, and and in um, in your tours of all these companies you work with, everything's integrated. Would every machine on the floor be integrated? Obviously, their servers are there. Their desktop machines are there. Yeah.
3: So do uh, people
0: integrate? Are they that integrated? Oh my gosh,
3: yes. Okay. Uh, so it, it depends on the firm. Depends on what the needs are. If you if you're doing, uh, you know, kneeling or some type of. Uh, Uh, quenching of uh, metals and stuff like that. Uh, You know, you you still need an ERP. uh, I find most of our manufacturers uh, do that. Uh, But then then you get into the very high-end electronics where there's fabrication of plastic parts with aluminum uh, pressed metal parts with uh, integrated circuits and integrated circuit boards. And that's where you really get... uh, Those
0: are, uh, if you've ever walked through some of these, um, I call them wholesalers, but
3: they're shops that sell machines. Yeah, you don't see people. No. Well, you do, no. but and those are the types of uh, operations that really get integrated. So there's okay. some uh, organizations, you know, if they're working on really uh, big block steel, you know, um, yeah, yeah they may not have yeah, a lot of system integration, that, you know, like but the if you brass, have, uh, casting uh, places and things like no. that. No. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And yeah. so if you have uh, a lot of CNC routing and mach- machining, milling. And uh, then, then you're putting in like an integrated uh, circuit board with a plastic cover. Uh, that requires a lot of systems integration. Mm-hmm. So wow. that's, that's where the need I- is. But uh, to yeah. answer the question, the genesis of the cyber need, yeah. when, when yeah. you think about uh, there's this term called Industry 4.0. McKinsey and the big uh, consulting companies are pushing um, sort of this, this uh, idea of uh, the digitization of manufacturing included Additive manufacturing where you print parts. Um, oh boy, don't get me started. <laughs> My son bought a machine. I that knew, knew this. We, we were getting there, weren't we? It's like uh, fishing. Uh, yeah. I, I could throw that out there and I knew, knew you were going to bite at it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but <laughs> additive manufacturing yeah. is just one of the nine technologies in Industry 4.0, right? And yeah. so you, there's au- augmented reality, there's virtual reality, there's systems integration. Um, there's additive printing and manufacturing. Oh, I can't remember a few of the other ones. But they all have a digital platform. And when you think about cybersecurity, which is one of the nine, cybersecurity is a foundational or a baseline technology that enables all that stuff to happen securely. Mm-hmm. You can't have um, automation and the Internet of Things down on the shop floor without having cybersecurity. And then it goes elsewhere so people can monitor yeah, that's and right. actually order from
0: it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we're just touching. So what do you folks do with that? Do you go and assess a plan Good or do you questions. just uh, well, you advise came, people? That's
3: <laughs> you, you, you threw out, Tom, uh, <laughs> I just you, wrecked your presentation. <laughs> <laughs> no, you did. You, you threw out a uh, concept. You said, well, uh, do your clients come to you for this or that? Yeah, exactly. And, what and, do they come and typically, they come to us for things that we're known for when they, their employees want to be trained. And that's probably oh. about 30% of our work. Okay, The majority of our work is to go in to talk with the presidents or the vice presidents or the directors and uh, sort of identify their frustrational uh, needs or their, their operational needs and uh, be able to pivot into one of the nine industry 4.0 areas. Uh, so for example, if they're struggling with um work in process at a couple of manufacturing cells is, is, is uh, getting bigger, um, we will go in and problem solve and say, geez, you know, you may want to do a value stream mapping uh, program, mm-hmm. and you may want to develop some digital requirements so that your ERP or your MRP system, your software yes. uh, systems, are reporting when uh, things get exceptionally large. And uh, so we can start developing... Uh, so the, the key is sometimes there are these frustrations or bottlenecks um, that manufacturers have, and we're like psychologists. We trip over them, and then we throw out some ideas, and they may gravitate towards one or two of the Or ideas. the person doesn't even know that he's graduated to that level, Correct. and there are solutions. Yeah,
0: that's right. Right? Yep. Okay. Well, that that could be complicated. So you have to do a lot of assessment then?
3: We do a lot of um, we have gotten very good at getting right to the chase. We're not there to do a two or three-hour survey process. We're there to to uh, dialogue with a uh, operation for about thirty to sixty minutes. You know, we're not. Okay. It's not an overly exhaustive process, but our people are applied, and um, they know the technology space is pretty well, and they start making uh, inferential and referential. Um, solutions for consideration. Then we bring our partners in to, to develop like scopes and proposals. Well, what kind of mistakes have you seen? What kind of uh, oh, problems boy. have you oh, seen? Boy. Oh, well, here we go. Oh. Here's the fun oh. story. Right? I can't mention names. <laughs> no, don't. I mention will names. not. I will not mention names. No, no. I'm, I'm teasing. But uh, oh, so. cybersecurity is a big one. Oh, well, it's, you would think in the it's 21st a, century everybody's doors would be locked, but that's not it true, is it? Is, is the it? elephant in the room? Is it? Oh, yeah. it's awful. We we had a a, a, lo, a regional breach here at uh, our operation. Um, one of the services, not yours, but someone you no, were helping. No, no, unfortunately, ours. You got invaded as well. Yeah, oh. uh, it was slight. We we contained it. Yeah, and we've learned from it. Um, you know, there are these things called key loggers where a hacker can go in and uh, record your keystrokes, yes. and then send those keystrokes uh and they can recreate your passwords and, and user uh, logins so we have recreated the situation but we're not certain the bottom line is um this the cyber area is just just rife with so someone's um, better connected all over
0: his plant his let's just say even if his office yeah. is accounting software his ordering
3: software yeah and this gets in there yeah this is well I'll, okay so let me tell you exactly what happened we send an invoice to a client and on that invoice is a please pay the Northwest IRC, and we have a, a, a city and state of Peach Street or, um, in Erie, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And uh, somewhere in the Ethernet, somebody puts a stamp saying, "Please pay this uh, routing number." Uh, it's a bank bank routing number. And when it's on your invoice, on the invoice. So, in the the internet, somewhere along the line, somebody recorded or got a hold of our PDF, tweaked it, put an illegal or uh, insecure or fraudulent uh, routing number on it, and uh, it was received by one of our clients. And, oh. uh, you know, we've learned uh, from that. And, but those are the things that happen. We had another client. Makes you think you should have mailed it. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, although the mail can be stolen. <laughs> I just saw this statistic. 27% of all cyber breaches are done with paper. You mean stolen
0: information? Stolen from paper. via paper. Well, it's like the copy machine. It scans everything. Yeah,
3: yeah. So I, I don't know how how we become st- safe. Yeah, we uh, have a postage machine that was hacked into.
0: They got into your because it's integrated with your office, your printer, yes, and everything uh, with else. With our yeah. systems, our yeah.
3: local network, and it's a worldwide uh, worldwide uh, phenomenon where hackers tried to get your. Uh, credits for the u.s postal sur- uh, system are
0: these domestic folks or foreign oh folks? Uh, it doesn't matter
3: or well I don't know uh, okay in the former uh example the the PDF that was intercepted in a stamp oh a PDF it, was intercepted yeah electronically oh, that was yeah. foreign uh, we traced the servers to uh, Belgium and and I believe Holland really yeah, yeah. European for, hackers. yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, gosh knows where they are yeah and if you they, go
0: farther east than uh, excuse me yeah, farther east than Belgium, there's a whole oh yeah
3: uh, group of people. There. Yeah, yeah. Thugs. <laughs> and um, then in the uh, latter uh, case, um, where um, somebody got into a network, um, that that could be done anywhere. Uh, you know, oh, wow. uh, our foreign adversaries are, are hacking into the, these mail servers and and, and so your.
0: Outline for this is you help people understand how this happens and what they
3: can do. Remediation. Remediation. Yeah. So you have a whole course? Well, uh, prevention is is number one. So you'll see a few newsletter articles every year from us telling you uh, as a user or a systems uh, user or manager – how to prevent uh, cyber attacks and, and uh, cyber threats? What about
0: remediation? Do you help with yeah fixing the problem? Oh yeah, and this goes down to a person's laptop at yeah. home, where they're doing business, or a correct fifty-person could tool be a server, shop?
3: Yep. just a server. Yep. Oh, that's right, could server. be a server. And one one of the best ways to uh, the two best ways. I, I, I you know this is not scientific, but I do a lot of reading. Number one area that uh, we focus on in some of our uh, writing and literature is um, password uh, security. Yes. You have to have strong oh, passwords. Make them long. Make them convoluted. Oh, According to the Department of Justice, you don't have to change them every sixty days. You well, you could know what? They're change doing. them once they're once a year or two. The year.
0: passwords on your uh, email now and your laptop saves. Yeah. Unfortunately, I had 48 passwords saved there because it's just aggravating to type in a 20-character oh, yeah. password with yeah. six exclamation points yeah.
3: two question marks. Well, <laughs> in one cyber breach that uh, I'm cognizant of, uh, out on a dark web, there are hacked systems like Yahoo, LinkedIn, oh, uh, yes. um, um Capital One. They were all uh, yeah. uh, stolen. The, the usernames, passwords, and probably Social Security, maybe even account numbers and so oh, yeah. I could go out onto the dark web and, yeah. and look for your information. If you were a Yahoo or LinkedIn user, uh, I could probably find your username and password. It probably would cost me about a dollar or two to do that. And then if I knew you were doing banking with uh, a local bank, for example, I could try your username and password on that bank and see if I could sure, get it. Sure, because people don't change passwords exactly. per account. You're supposed like, to. Rule one. They're supposed don't. to. Don't. Don't have one password. No, No. (laughs) Jerry. Jerry at WQLN. No, no. (laughs) Exclamation point, just to be safe. Yeah, Yeah. I should have my uh, what? It's called passport. That's my WQLN uh, password. It should not be the same one that I'm using for my Vanguard. Uh, investments. Well, my
0: password is you can have it all!
3: <laughs> Exclamation point.
2: Because <laughs> I have none. I have
0: nothing. It's all yours. But we're laughing. But it's not funny because you probably have experienced some of these problems with your clients, or they they're they're very cognizant of this, or you've made them cognizant of this, and you're helping it, them out. It's
3: brutal. Um, brutal. It, 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 <laughs> Good it, work. It's brutal. I've it's not seen, funny. Though. I've it's seen funny. Office 365 accounts uh, pop up on day one. Do some uh, by the hackers, you know, especially your. mean day one of having it installed. Well, well whatever. Uh, follow the logic. Yeah, uh, and then on day three, that Office three sixty five account it has been mothballed because on day one or two they've done something nefarious or fraudulent. Um, for example, let's say um, your uh, um, your um, domain address was wq and dot .org, right. for example, right? right. And Everybody I knows them, l- yeah. let's say I want to spoof uh, your organization and ask uh, Erie Insurance, for example. They, they seem like they have dot deep pockets. I'm not saying they do, but if they were, I could nefariously say my name is Tom Pies mm-hmm. at W-I- uh, Q- uh, W I. What was W Q I N? Yeah. Uh, dot oh, yeah. Or, or I would put one letter off, instead of putting the L, I would put an I, and most people would never see that. I could, yeah. I could create an Office 365 account that had the preface of W-Q-I-N. And org and I could take the name of Tom Pies, send it over to Erie Insurance and say, listen, uh, you guys have been great in times past. I really need a million dollars for our radio station, and then they wire that money, and then yeah. within a day or two, they've totally uh, mothballed their uh, Office 365 account and they've gotten rid of the domain WQIN. N, yeah, totally. And great. so I, we've just experienced that within the last uh, couple months. We're, so you offer prevention, money. you offer some logical
0: solutions yeah. and some. Um, of course, um, somewhere along the line, this has to be solved universally, logistically. Oh, it's and, terrible. Yeah, it's, it's so it's, much for It's it. a
3: war. When they talk about a war, it people don't realize. There yeah, are no billions clue. and hundreds of billions and of I would, dollars in uh,
0: It's interesting because uh, Google, as you know, is a wonderful company. And just read the history of Google. Go back to the founders. And <laughs> that's not implicating or insinuating yeah. anything. But knowledge is, what I'm getting at is, knowledge is universal. Yeah. It's just doesn't belong to the united states alone no and there's some places in the world you'd be surprised that are very adept yeah you mentioned belgium eastern yeah. and now we can go to eastern europe and worse yet africa and china yep and
3: uh, malaysia so one, well. one of the tactics we recently yeah. did on our server is to block all traffic uh to those places uh oh we you got, geographically ge- isolated. yeah yourself. it's called oh. geo-fencing really yeah within your sonic wall or whatever uh, firewall you're using I got some raised eyebrow from our uh, ISP uh, service provider, who um, you know, like we've never seen this before. I mean, you want to, you want to block Sudan? Why would, why would anybody want to block Sudan? <laughs> i Am <like>, me. <laughs> well? I don't have any clients over in Sudan. We do work in our 13 counties. Now, what do uh, I need an email from? Uh, yeah,
0: the example you gave me was, uh, yeah, Saudi Arabia. Yeah, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah.
3: yeah. And so uh, I got some funny looks. Uh, apparently, the systems engineers that. Uh, feel did my request um you know why well, you know, maybe why, they, why, do, why doesn't schnaggenberger and uh, northwest irc why don't sure, they want me to hire to North you Korea? as a consultant <laughs> yeah yeah we've but run, uh, but we've, but we've, you can you yeah. can uh, limit uh, well, where, where you can your your yeah. internet traffic is coming
0: well uh, and we could go on to what happens with your cell phone which is also an internet device well unfortunately we're going to invite you to fortunately we're going to invite you to come back unfortunately We've run out of time, and this has been uh, most fascinating. I hope people now have a better understanding of the Northwest Industrial Resource Center. Jerry uh, Schneckenberger here, Chief Operating Officer. Regards to all your staff. Thank you for being here. And uh, we're going to have you back and, and do a part two, if that's okay. Yeah. Love to have
3: you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank
0: you for being here.